Welcome to Roadcase, the podcast that explores the live music experience. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Josh Rosenberg, and I'll be taking you on a journey through in-depth interviews with performers and key people in the industry to explore the magic of live music, how it can be totally transformative for both fans and performers, and we'll look at how they take it all out on the road. It's going to be a great ride, so here we go. Okay, everyone, welcome back to Roadcase. Really psyched to be here. I'm your host, Josh Rosenberg. Thanks for joining me. Got a great episode to share with you with Andrew Mishko. Uh, you're going to love his story. So um, let's get right down to it. Um, in the meantime, I want to remind everybody to get involved with uh, Roadcase. Uh, and there's a couple of different ways you can do that. One is by following, uh, following us on social media. We're at Roadcase Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Uh, we also have a YouTube channel, Roadcase Podcast. Uh, you can also get in touch with me by email. You can shoot me an email at info at roadcasepod.com with questions, concerns, even suggestions for guests. Promise I'll get back to you. Um, another great way to get involved with Roadcase is to, uh, to check out the website. We're at uh, www.roadcasepod.com. Uh, there's more information on the podcast and there's some information about uh, the host uh, as well. Uh, you can find a little bit more information about me uh, over at the website. Um, also a great way to support Roadcase is to rate and review this podcast on your favorite listening platform. Uh, for example, on Apple Podcasts, uh, which is one of the more popular uh, listening platforms, you can just scroll down to the bottom and find the rate and review section right there. Uh, hit some stars, throw in a review, and you can also subscribe by hitting the check mark up in the upper right-hand corner. That's a huge help, and I really appreciate everyone's support. So this week, I'm really excited to have Andrew Mishko on Roadcase. Uh, Andrew's a native of Venice, California, super hardworking dude, had a very unique uh, kind of tough upbringing and adolescence, uh, spent a little bit of time in juvenile hall, dropped out of high school, but got involved in live music um, after he got a couple of breaks and got out of juvenile hall, uh, cut a deal much to his benefit. Uh, he got out of that system and was always drawn to live music, found a variety of different jobs, got sober, totally wanted to learn, found a sober community he could uh, relate to and who was supportive of him and vice versa, and just began to really get involved. He worked sound jobs, uh, he worked monitor jobs, merch jobs, and everything kind of just kept snowballing in terms of his, his involvement. Um, it's a really great story. He went on and toured for like six years, and in late 2014, one of the bands that he was really close with asked him to uh, try to manage that band as well the drums is the band um, and from there Andrew has been working uh, at management and management companies and uh, now he has his own company called no Sundays uh, that he founded with a couple of his friends um, and uh, Andrew also gives back to the community and talks to uh, young kids that are in the juvenile hall system, uh, explaining to them that it doesn't always have to be like that. And that, uh, holds himself out as an example of that. It's super admirable. I love Andrew's spirit. I loved talking to him and hearing his story and, uh, loved hearing his vibe about live music. Uh, it's really 
what it's all about. Um, and I'm really glad you guys are here. I think you'll love this, uh, this interview and this episode. So thanks again for being here and your support of continued support of Roadcase. I truly and really appreciate it. And I want to thank Andrew Mishko again for being here on this episode of Roadcase. And here we go. Uh, hey, Andrew. Thanks for joining me, man. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. So you're in L.A.? I am in L.A., yeah, uh, in Los Feliz. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, I didn't tell you. I grew up there, so familiar with the area a little bit. Try to get back. I'm, I'm in Chicago now, but um, love going back to L.A. It's my favorite place to hang out. Where did you grow up here? Uh, in the Valley. Okay, uh, cool. Sherman Oaks. Okay. Went to Grant High School well. out there <laughs> way back in the, you know, late 70s, early 80s. And, uh, <laughs> went to Be- school. Before my time. Yeah, a little bit probably. <laughs> um, uh, went to school up, up the road at Santa Barbara. So didn't, leave, didn't, go oh, wow. too, didn't go too far away and then made my way east and such. But uh, love it there. How's Las Feliz these days? Right now it's hot. Oh, um, it is? The weather's oh, yeah. nice. Yeah, yeah it's getting hot here. The weather's nice. Um, there's people out. It feels like the world is opening back up again. Yeah. Um, lots of restaurants crowded with people and coffee shops and people out doing their thing. So it's a good, it's a good energy right now. And I like my neighborhood because it's quiet. Um, yeah. In LA, there's always kind of like the main roads and then there's like pockets of neighborhoods. So you can kind of it sort of feels you can have a quiet feel, but have access to some activity not too far away. It seems if you stay in your neighborhood. Yeah, totally. Like I grew up in Venice and, um, you know, so I'm like used to kind of like growing up around chaos. Mm -hmm. Like when we were, when we were growing up, like, you know, Venice had this like nickname and it was, uh, it was Venice where the debris meets the sea. (laughs) And like, it was just kind of this thing that we like lived by and we loved the commotion and the craziness and, you know, like all the street vendors and hippies and, you know, like just, it was like what I loved. And then, you know, as I get older, I, I realized that I, I don't know if I necessarily love that so much anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, and not that I don't appreciate it. I just, you know, um, I like to just be in a quiet area. And when I'm home, I don't want to like step outside and have like a bunch of people like playing bongos and stuff. Yeah. You know, so it's like just a, it's a different an energy that I look for now. I love Venice though. I, um, I used to visit there when I was in high school. I remember the Rose cafe opening in 1978 and that was kind of a cool place for a Valley kid to come out and hang out and kind of absorb that, that boardwalk energy that I didn't get anywhere else. And there was just such a diversity of, of humanity and energy. And there was always music going on and there was always, it was gritty, but it was beautiful and it's right on the beach. And I still, that's my, that's my happy place. That's where I kind of go and hang out and just be, uh, and just love it there. You know? Yeah. I was, I was just out earlier this month, uh, earlier in May, actually. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, There's a lot, a lot has changed down there. Um, Oh yeah. It's getting crazy. (laughs) Yeah. You know, my, yeah, my mom moved to Venice in the seventies, 
early seventies. So mm. probably a little bit before you were going down there to the Rose cafe or when it opened or whatever. And, yeah. um, and she opened up, she actually opened up the first ever roller skate shop on the <laughs> no Venice kidding. boardwalk. Huh. Yeah. She was like a pioneer of that. And so like Venice has just been, it's been like all I knew, like my, I, I since I was born, like I, the like first few days I was out of the hospital, like my mom had me on the boardwalk and you know, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I love it. It's like, you know, I, I miss what it used to be. I try not to get resentful about what it is now. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's, there's, it holds a sweet place in my heart. Um, yeah, for sure. Of like where I grew up, you know? Cool, man. Well, you've been in live music and live performance kind of almost your whole life. I guess you're, uh, Tell me about your love for production and, and, and live music and how that all got started for you. Yeah. So, um, I always loved music. Um, you know, my mom loved music and my family, like everyone in my family, um, growing up, like always had music on and it was kind of just a thing that we bonded over and, um, but I, I honestly didn't think that I would ever like want, I never had this like idea that I was going to work in music or mm -hmm. I was going to do it for a profession. Um, and you know, and when I was younger, I like played in punk bands and would go to punk shows and kind of like all throughout my teenage years. And, um, and then, you know, I got, I needed a job and, uh, I had like just dropped out of school and I didn't have work and, I needed a job and, um, you know, and there's a guy that lives in my neighborhood. Uh, he's an older guy. He's well older than me. Um, he's not older, but, uh, he, he had like a production company and he, it was like labor services for like concerts and private events and whatnot. And his name's bagel. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> short, short little Jewish guy kind of just got that nickname from when he was a kid and, but, you know, I, I went up to him, I'm like, Hey man, I need a job. And so it was kind of just like one of those things where all I knew is that I needed money. I didn't really care how I was going to get it. And there was a job available for me and I started doing that mm -hmm. and kind of instantly I was like, wow, I really like doing this. Like, this is fun. Like I was meeting people that were like me covered in tattoos. And cause I was, when I was 16, I had tattoos, which is crazy, but like, it was just, I was meeting people that were like me and mm -hmm. I was like, well, why would I want to do anything else? You know, um, eventually like I, he ended up firing me, um, for like, <laughs> for having, what, for I, having I, too, for having too many tattoos. <laughs> no, for showing up for, for not like I had to do. So I had, I was on, I was booked on a job like in orange County, this place called the Honda center. And, yeah. um, and the night before I was supposed to, I was supposed to be there at 7am. And the night before I was supposed to be there, I like partied all night mm. and woke up at 7am to like him calling me. And he was just kind of like, where are you? And I was like, uh, uh, I just woke up and he's like, you need to get down there right now, or I'm going to kick your fucking ass. <laughs> and like, I got up and I found a ride down there. And then he was like, I was like, do I come back for the loadout? And he's like, no, you're fired. And I was like, oh, okay. Uh, so, you know, I took some time to like kind of sort my, my life out, whatever. Um, and, uh, and I called him up. I'm like, Hey dude, I'm doing really well. I just was wondering if there was any work for me. 
and he plugged me in with another group of guys. He said, I'm not going to hire you, but you know, I'll, I'll plug you in with some other guys. And I started working for another production company and then, which led to like me eventually getting a job at golden voice, um, mm-hmm. which was like kind of my first job working in like only concerts. Like there was no private events. There was none of that kind of stuff. Right. Um, and I just like was reminded that I didn't want to do anything else, you know, like, yeah. um, everyone that I grew up with was like, they were like construction workers or like, you know, like, and I grew up doing that too. Like I would, when I was like 12, 13, 14, like working as labor on construction sites. And I just, I hated the the same, like the monotony of like showing up every morning at 6am and like picking up a hammer and like digging a hole. And, you know, like I hated it. So when Mm -hmm. I found this job, I was like, I don't want to do anything else. You know, you dropped out of high school. Yeah just didn't work out for you. I mean, what was your, what guy, you didn't like it. What happened? Um, I, you know, I had like a really, really unique upbringing. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was like, you know, I was a troublemaker and, and, uh, and I partied a lot when I was a kid and, School just didn't work. It didn't fit into my, what I thought my schedule was supposed to be. Yeah. So, you know, by the time, like within like my first year of high school, um, I had gone to like seven high schools and, um, Mm. I, you know, uh, had done like a stint in juvenile hall and went to school there. Yeah. Why? What happened? Uh, I just, you know, I, I think it's kind of, it's this thing. I don't like to blame it all on Venice, but there's this thing that happens when you're a young kid in Venice. And especially when I was growing up there, it's a lot different now, but most of my friends that I grew up with are either like in prison for like a very long time or have died and, uh, or kind of just don't really do much. There's like very few people that I grew up with that made it past kind of, a normal, like made it into like actual adulthood. Um, and there's still a lot of people down there that I grew up with that are still doing the same thing, you know, like, uh, and you know, still people passing away. And so like, but that was the life that I thought I wanted to live, which was like, Mm. I want to be, I can get away with just being a criminal and I can get away with, um, not going to school and partying and like, these are my group of friends and I don't want to have responsibilities and all this stuff. So like I dropped out like that. The last grade that I actually completed was the ninth grade. Well, actually I didn't mm-hmm. even complete it. So if I were to go back to school right now, I would be a freshman in high school. Um, and it was just kind of one of those things where I didn't find, I was like, I don't need this. You know, yeah. I don't, this doesn't fit into my schedule. So I just stopped going. Like eventually yeah. I stopped going. And the juvenile hall stint, just getting involved with the wrong people, making some bad choices, getting caught doing shit. and Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to say that I got involved with the wrong people, but then again, sometimes I feel like maybe the right people got involved with me. I don't know. Like, it's kind of one of those things where I don't want to point blame hmm. on anyone. It was just kind of like, that was the life that I thought I wanted to live. And, you hmm. know, um, and I made a ton of mistakes and I was just like constantly getting arrested. Like, I couldn't do 
I was finding myself like in a back of a cop car, like constantly. Um, and like every time it just kind of progressively got worse, like whatever it was, like whether it was like more jail time or like worse charges or, um, I don't know, like it, it just always got worse. And, um, so, you know, like going to juvenile hall the last time, like, you know, it was for like some really serious stuff. And, and I remember kind of like, once again, thinking like, well, I'm just going to get out. Nothing's really going to happen to me. And like, I'll be fine. Like this, I'll move past this. And it's like, you know, when you're, I was at that time, I was like, I think I was 15 when that, when I got arrested that time. And, and I remember like, you know, getting shuttled from the juvenile hall, like to the courthouse and meeting with my public defender and, um, and he was just kind of like, look, uh, you know, your caseload is large and mm-hmm. the judge knows that. And um, they're trying to throw the book at you. And like, I'm going to do my best to like get you out of this. But, you know, worst case scenario, you do like 15 years. Holy and um, and I was just kind of like, all right, like, I guess I got to like take that on the chin, you know, and like. And so I stayed in juvenile hall for a couple months and I was like fighting my case. And, um, basically like what ended up happening was, is because of certain circumstances, like, um, I was like offered, like every time I would go to court, they would like give me a different plea. Like, okay, cool. Like we'll plea it down to this if you take this. And I just kept saying no. Um, and then eventually they just offered me something that I couldn't really refuse uh, which was time served. And, uh, I had to do probation for a few years and I had to do like, I had to go to like drug counseling and I had to go to therapy and I had to do like a thousand hours of community service and I had to pay restitution and, and all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, well, like I'm, if I'm not facing any more time, like then cool, like give it to me, you know? And I pled guilty to like a lesser charge and, um, which like, even by doing that, like, you know, like that kind of screwed my life up. Um, you know, having that on my record, it put me in like really precarious situations, like are not precarious, but like I put myself in precarious situations and then that didn't help to have that. And, you know, it was a really big wake up call for me, but I'm also a stubborn human being. So like I got out and, and I got arrested a couple more times and luckily like, um, I don't know what happened. Uh, the universe was looking out for me or something and no, nothing, nothing more serious happened, you know, and I eventually became an adult and, uh, I got sober and, um, and that's kind of like when my life started to change and, um, you know, I've, and I've been doing what I do now since. Yeah. Yeah. Well, God, that's a difficult difficult upbringing and it sounds like you had a you had a moment of uh realization or a couple moments of realization and some time uh you know to get through that my first thought is kind of like um yeah you made some bad choices but fortunately you were doing that when you were a kid and by the time you were 18 it sounds like you kind of came to your senses <laughs> at some point yeah. you just had some realization and got involved with this uh with this production job which obviously helped yeah, at, at it, some point until he didn't show up in that morning, and then but just continued yeah. to push, th- continued to push through. 
Yeah, well, obviously, like at that point when I got that job, I wasn't sober and, it, and, it, and I had to clean up a little bit after that. But, mm. you know, once I started, once I cleaned up, like it was like a month before my 18th birthday. Um, and then it was like shortly after that, that I started working at Golden Voice and kind of found a community of people that held me accountable, you know, like, yeah, it was, you know, there's, there's so many, what I've learned from, from being like sober and working in the music industry, which I thought those two things didn't really, um, connect with each other is that there are so many, I mean, I was like, you know, naive to think that there wasn't other sober people that existed within the music industry, but <laughs> there's so many of us. And, mm. um, and I found those people, you know, like, working at golden voice and going to shows and meeting like sober touring dudes and like all this stuff. And I, and it just became this thing where I was like, Oh, I don't have to like go back to that. And there's like something really amazing here that I want to keep doing, you know, like, wow, that's cool. Yeah. You know, when, once I was able to like pay my rent, you know, buy cigarettes, that's literally like, that was like starters. What I wanted was like, I need to be able to like put food in my stomach, buy cigarettes and pay my rent. And that I kind of accomplished that. And then it was just like, okay, cool. Like what's the next thing that I want, you know, like, yeah. but all of that had to do with staying clean. Ultimately. Yeah. What was that? What was that one moment when you found that one or two people or however many that when that realization that, Hey, um, there are people out there that have, um, uh, been through a lot and now are sober and when did you realize like this is a model what was that moment like for you this is a model where i can that i can be okay and i can it's you know people that have gone through too much partying and too much carrying on or and substance abuse or, or alcohol or what have you and I can not do that. It's okay. There are people that don't do that and are still involved in this business and, and have with successful careers. Yeah. I mean, so kind of the first person, like, obviously like I, I want to be anonymous with like, I don't want to mention names or anything, but yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, there was one guy in particular that, uh, that I met and he had like, you know, over 10 years sober. And, and I was kind of like this feeling of like excitement, like, Oh man, like, this is something that I can like somebody who's doing what I want to do and they're staying clean doing it. And I'm not like, it kind of just gave me hope. Mm -hmm. And then like, you know, talking to that person and then that person introducing me to other people. And then it was kind of like all these people were just being uncovered, you know, like, Oh, this person and this person. And then I could like call that guy if like I was stressed or like whatever. And it was like going, you know, I remember like my first time going and working Coachella and like, there was like meetings at Coachella mm. and like, you know, like sober guys that I knew were like, yo, like go split for an hour and go take the meeting. And, um, you know, and I remember kind of like the first time that I felt where I was like, oh man, this is incredible. was like, was going to Coachella, working the festival, and um, there was a meeting on site that was hosted by Music Cares. And um, I went to that meeting and like my sober birthday is in April. Mm -hmm. So I remembered like taking a sober cake for one year, like at Coachella in this place where I'm like working and there was just something really special about that. Yeah. Um, and it just, yeah, it just it was like one more thing that like reaffirmed that I was like in the right place. Like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing right now. 
Right on, you know? right on. Good for you, yeah. man. That's that's a great. Thank that's you. a great. That's a great story. I'm I'm so happy for you <laughs> that you found that. Thank you, thank you. I, pre- I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. It's fuck been a, yeah, it's man. Incredible journey. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And it's good to hear too that there's that that kind of support within within the the music community um, and for mental health, sobriety, etc. Um, you know, I had a uh, Hillary Gleason who runs uh, Backline, which is a mental yeah. health support organization in the music business. I'm sure you've heard of. So uh, mm-hmm. we talked about those issues a lot. Uh, it's mostly that's kind of about mental health and being in, uh, in touring and being able to talk to people about those issues that crop up and being away from home or touring and other right. things that just that that mental issues that crop up. But of, of course, sobriety is a is a is a big issue as well. And um I'm, I'm I'm glad to hear that your that eventually your experience was positive and you you found the right people, uh, for sure, man, for sure. Good yeah, for, no, good for you. Definitely. Right on. How many years has it been now, sober? Uh, April of this year, I celebrated 13 years. Wow! Congratulations, man. Yeah, thank you, thank that's you. Awesome. That's awesome. It's a that's trip. Awesome. Yeah, it's a trip. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so Golden Voice, and then you um uh. Uh, what, what were you, what were you doing then? And where, how did that evolve into, uh, tour managing and, um, uh, and then into bigger and better things? Tell me a little bit about, yeah, so, about your experience yeah. in, the, in, in live music. Yeah. I mean, so I, I was at, I was at Golden Voice for a while and I was working at kind of all the LA venues, like as a stagehand and a stage manager and, um, you know, and like I, I kind of clicked up with like, there was this, you know, uh, sound guy who I just kind of made like fast friends with and his name was Ron and he, you know, did front of house for like a ton of like really great bands and he was just always around and he worked for like this local sound company called Rat Sound, which has been around forever and does like a ton of work with people with, you know, touring acts and Mm -hmm. venues and festivals and Um, and I remember like seeing him do that and I was like, I want to do that. Like, I don't want to just do this. Like, I want to try that. And so I would just hound him like every time I saw him and like, you know, at that time I was like 19 years old or 20 years old. And like, I was like, Hey man, Hey man, like, can you teach me how to do this? Like I was probably annoyed the shit out of him. Like, but I've been, (laughs) can you teach me how to do this? Like, I want to learn. Can I shadow you? Like, whatever. And he's just like, no, 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 no. Like go, go out and figure it out and then come back to me. And, um, you know, so I like just started going to everyone I knew like, Hey, can I like learn how to do sound? Like da da da. ended up like getting a sound job, never done sound. Like I had like literally would practice like in my friends, like rehearsal space just to like learn how to like plug things in and all this stuff. And I like, I've kind of always been told like fake it till you make it. And that's kind of like a motto that I had to live by, especially like not having the ability to like take an unpaid internship or like anything like that. Like I never had the ability to do that. Like it was always like, if I'm not working, I can't survive. So how do I like do this without like losing money? So I, I got a job at the Malibu Inn. And I was working for this promoter that would book there and it was like small shows. And I was like doing sound there and just figuring it out. Like it was bad. Like the (laughs) amount of disasters that I probably caused at those shows, uh, is tragic, but, um, I got like my chops in and then, you know, and then 
told, I would call Ron and I'd be like, Hey man, like I've been doing sound at Malibu Inn and I really think I'm figuring it out. Like, I mean, I'm pissing a lot of people off, but you know, and he'd be like, that's good. That's good. And uh, one day he just (laughs) called me and was like, Hey, what are you doing for the next eight weeks? And I was like, uh, I don't know, you know, like working at the Fonda and he's like, do you want to go on tour? And I was like, yes. So, you know, I had this like kind of inner conflict, which was like, if I leave for eight weeks, um, am I going to lose my kind of like position here to somebody else? And then when I come back, am I not going to have work? And I remember Mm. like communicating that to him. And he was like, at some point when you want to change what you do, you have to like take that leap of faith and like expect that everything's going to be okay. Yeah. Um, and, and understand that it may not be okay. (laughs) So, and then you can handle it if it's not. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I went and talked to my boss at the time at golden voice and I told Mm -hmm. him what I wanted to do. And he was like, I support you doing that. Oh, right. And I was like, I was like, great. And he's like, I will have a spot for you when you get back. Oh, that's great. It's like, cool. So I went on the road. Uh, I got my first job, uh, for rat sound and I was literally plugging in cables on stage and it was a country music festival. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, I want to say like a week and a half in or two weeks in, I guess like tickets weren't selling very well for the festival and they like had to like strip down a couple stages and there was this whole thing and they were like, yo, like, I'm really sorry, but we're going to have to send you home. Mm. And I just was like crushed Mm. because I was like, here's my like first opportunity to be on the road. And I've hardly ever left California in my life. And I'm like being put on a plane and put up in a hotel and like being paid to do it. And I just, where was, was where was this, uh, this first place? Uh, I think the first place was in like Florida and Uh, we had done like a couple stops or like it was during pre-production. I don't, I don't totally remember because it was a long time ago, but yeah, yeah. And, and it was a tour that like that Kevin Lyman had put together and I had like kind of quickly made friends with a lot of the people. And I remember just going up to, I forget who it was. There was a couple guys on that tour that I was friends with. And I, I just was like, look, like they, they offered me like two weeks of severance pay. And, and I just said like, Hey, um, can I like, can I stay? And I, you don't even need to pay me. Like you paid mm-hmm. me my severance pay. Mm-hmm. Like, I want to learn. I came out here because like, I want to get the experience and like, I don't want to go home like without that. Right. And they were like, sure. Cool. They were like, we'll let you stay. So I stayed on the tour for six weeks. My first thought was like, I'm glad they didn't say no, we're getting rid of you because you sucked. No, it was just No, no, no. no. It was like, yeah, come on, man. If you want to work for free, you're doing a good job. That's great. That's yeah, great. they were super supportive and like yeah. I learned so much and I made so many connections right on, on that tour. And you know, like one of the bands that was on the festival was this artist Ryan Bingham and the, and he had a band called The Dead Horses and mm-hmm. uh I made really good friends with them. Mm-hmm. Uh they're still like friends to this day and right you know, on. I ended up touring with them later. Yeah. But it was just like that tour led straight into another one. And then that one led into another one and that one led into another one. And it was like, I found myself like kind of right off the, like right out the gate. Like I was touring nine to 11 months a year, like, and it just didn't, it didn't really stop, you know? And, and it was like, and I did anything just to learn what to do. So it was like, I did sound on that. These these next gigs were paying you though, right? (laughs) Exactly. yeah. Yeah. But it was like, even after that gig, it was like, Oh, like 
do you want to um, like Ryan Bingham, like, Hey, we really like you a lot, but we don't have the money to pay a sound person. We really need a merch person. Will you come out and sell merch? And I was Mm. like, I don't want to do that, but okay. So I like, but I went and did that. And then it was like from that tour, there was like another tour that needed a merch seller. And I like went on that tour and then I was like, I really, I really hate doing this. I don't want to do this anymore. And then I got a call from a friend of mine who was working with this like American Idol winner. And he's like, you do monitors. And I was like, never done it before. And he's like, well, you want to learn? And I was like, <laughs> right on. yeah, let's go. So he flew me out. He said, you have one week to figure out how to do this. And there was another monitor engineer there who I'd met on my first tour. And he's like, he's going to teach you. You have one week to figure it out that you're going home Holy and your shit. first week's not paid. And I was like, okay. So I showed up. I just stood over this guy for a week straight every night at the shows. Mm. I would open up the console when we had days off, like Mm -hmm. in the parking lot and plug it in and like learn how to program it. And, and I kept that job for like six months until like they ran out of budget and had to start cutting crew and it, but it was crazy because it had nothing to do with my performance. It just had to do with. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and and these are so this was similar to rat sound and rat sound is a um let me just take a step back for a sec rat sound is a is a is um like a sound consulting company that kind of that acts will that are traveling or tours will uh employ to run all the sound for that particular tour or that particular show or a particular artist going on tour is that right instead of having that yeah that's kind right. of their own sound people so exactly yeah, okay so you can get a lot of experience because you're like involved with different acts while working for a particular sound company exactly interesting yeah um so where did we go from there so so uh, how'd that monitor job go and what did that, uh, and, and, uh, tell me a little bit about your experiences, uh, kind of, so you're, you're, you're up on stage, you're running the monitors. How did that, how did that work? And what did the, uh, what was the outcome when you finally tell me a little about when you first started to do that on your own after spending that intensive week of training, what was that like? Yeah. I mean, so like the two that I was learning from, like when I first met him, he was like pretty nice to me, but on that week, I think he was like really pissed off that he had to like train me. And he was a total dick. And, um, and it's totally fine because like, you know, I excelled in what I did and, and I would see him later on, like on tours and stuff like that. And we're so cool now. And yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to train on the job to train someone on the job. It's both hard to learn while you're on the job and it's hard as the person that's training you because they're, they're trying to do their job and train you at the same time, obviously. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I'm, I, and I'm also sure that I was annoying. Like, you know, I was young and <laughs> trying to figure it out. Like I never, I never want to like not say that I could have been annoying because then I would be giving myself too much credit, but, um, <laughs> so you, you did know, that for quite so, a while, right? Uh, what's touring uh, sound? Yeah. 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 Oh, I, what being annoying. I'm like, yeah, yeah no, probably, I can tell you're still, probably, I can yeah. tell you're still annoying. Andrew, don't, yeah, don't worry exactly. about that. No, it's going. Cool. Some, cool. some people will say that and some people will say the opposite. I try to stay right in the middle. Um, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, no, I did that for a while and it was like, I went from that tour and then got called for like something else. And then like, after that was kind of like my first job being a tour manager. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was doing front of house and tour managing and, um, you know, I showed up and I did like, I did like a week 
of like promo stuff with this artist. And then I um, was like advancing this longer tour and I did like advance the entire tour. And then there was like, I don't know if it was like, at the time I thought it was like a conflict in personality. And, and I'm sure that that might've been like what it was, but I think also like I was young and the whole point of me being on that tour was that that artist was newly sober. I was sober. They wanted to have a sober crew, mm. but like I was young. And I think that that artist probably didn't feel super safe with a tour manager who didn't really have that much experience. And like, I look back on that now and I'm like, that makes sense. Like, yeah. I, as a manager now, wouldn't want my artist on the road with somebody who had as little experience as I did. So that didn't really work out, but it didn't matter because it was like people knew that I worked hard and that I was accountable. So, you know, it was like right after that, it's like I got offered another job. And as a tour as a tour manager. I think the next one was as a monitor engineer. Uh, okay. And then um, I would bounce like, I mean, I was, you know, at that point I was starting to get called by a lot of different people, um, like labels and management companies and stuff to go work for them. So it'd be like one tour would be, you know, um, a monitor engineer gig. And then one would be a front of house gig or one would be tour manager. Or one would be tour manager front of house or some combination of the, of the two. And, mm -hmm. um, and at that point I was getting like so many offers to like go on the road that like I was actually able to be selective about what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, and that wasn't, you know, more than like two years, a year and a half, probably a year, probably a year into like touring. So it happened right. really quickly. Um, and I would just like work with artists that I like to work with, you know, like our artists that I was like fans of and, um, and I started doing that more and, um, you know, I was like working with like anyone from like the drums who later on in my story, like I end up managing and I still manage them today. And like, mm -hmm. you know, going on tour with M83 or Ryan Bingham or, you know, working with like a ton of like, um, <clears throat> EDM DJs, which I eventually just did tour management. Um, yeah. and that was kind of like the peak of like where I was, like, that was yeah. a really amazing time working with those artists and like, the money that you were being paid and the accommodations and the travel and all that kind of stuff. So, so t tell um, me, tell me, tell me what you love the most about doing sound. Cause you did that, you did that for quite a while and your learning curve yeah. was pretty steep. Like you had to like get on it really quickly to get going with it, but you did it for quite a while. What, what was it that you loved about it or, do you wish that you would have continued with that or are you, um, how, how was that kind of transition in your mind over to, uh, to, uh, to, to management? Yeah. So I really, it's just like, so like, I don't even know if this is like a, a great answer, but like, I really just like making stuff sound good. Like yeah, being a music lover, it's a challenge to like, <clears throat> to get up on, to get up at the front of house console and like you're at a festival with 70,000 people in the audience and like make something sound like make all 70,000 people enjoy what they're hearing. Cause like right a band a fucking, can be amazing. That's a fucking great answer, dude. <laughs> okay, cool. Great. Great. Because you know, I don't, I go to concerts, you know, I've been to so many concerts in my life now and like when the sound is bad. Yeah it sucks. Like the show sucks. It doesn't matter yeah. what's happening on stage. If it sounds bad. No, and for like, sure. 
you know, and it was like doing front of house was that. And then it's like, also when you're doing monitors, like, you know, it's a challenge and it's the same, you're like, you're still trying to do the same thing, right? Like you're trying to make something sound good for people, but it's on a much smaller scale. Like you're whatever doing monitors for four to 10 people on stage and like, yeah, well, if they can't hear yeah. themselves, then they can't play well. Then exactly, you know, then they can't make the you know the sound good for for all the all the people that are there. And it's super fucking important, man. Half the people at a festival can't see what's going on on stage, but they can fucking hear it. <laughs> yeah, and there's something really <laughs> awesome about like you know when something like because there's always something that's going to go wrong. It doesn't matter. Like it might not uh, be every show. It might be not be every other show. It might be every twenty shows. But like when something goes wrong, like having that challenge of like, it's my responsibility to fix this. And like, it's my job to fix this. And like, I want to be a problem solver. And, you know, and like, I have like a fine attention to detail and like, A, how do I prevent things like that from happening before they happen? And like, Mm -hmm. B, when the rare times that they do happen, like, how do I fix them as quickly as possible to make the show go on? And there's something really, there was something really exciting about that for me. Um, Yeah. And I almost feel like maybe it was like somewhat cathartic. Like maybe I'm trying to like fix something from my, like I took whatever stuff has happened in my past and brought it into like a current situation and like felt in control to be able to in fix control. it. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 That's interesting. Cause yeah. When you have something like, n- like a nuts and bolts issue that you can like, there's a problem and I can solve it and it's happening on the fly and there's other shit happening, but I can solve this one fucking thing. And you kind of always know something's going to happen. Right. But it's right. like being able to take care of it in the moment. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. that's kind of why I, I loved it, you know? And, yeah. Um, but the, you know, to answer your second question, which is like why it kind of like moved into management was, you know, like I, and it kind of, it kind of falls into this other section of like, you know, the, the woman that you had on the podcast from backline, which is like, I felt like my mental health was deteriorating. Mm. Um, from being on, just being on the, being on the road so much, you did it for like yeah. sound for like six years, right? Yeah. Six or seven years. Yeah. Like, you know, and I know that there's, you know, there's people who have been doing this for like 30 years and like, sometimes I question how they do it for as long as they do. And I think you need to be cut from a certain cloth. And, and look, if, if I wouldn't have been given the opportunity to try something else after touring, like I can probably guarantee that I still would have been doing it today. Mm -hmm. Um, but my, yeah, my mental health was deteriorating and like, I, you know, I lost a lot of friends just because like I wasn't around or able to like be in their lives and, and I was in a long-term relationship and like my relationship with that woman was like falling apart. Um, because like what would happen is, is that I would go out on the road and I'd be gone for five months and then I would come home for two weeks or a week or whatever it was. And, and I would just fall kind of like into an instant depression because, Mm. you know, when you're on the road, you're like, you have a routine, you're like, wake up, you got to get to the airport. You got to get in the van. You got to drive from here. You got to get on the bus. You got to park the bus. You got to make sure everything's set up. And it's like, you're surrounded by people who like at that point, kind of in a way, depending on how long you tour with them and how the relationships are built, like they become your family. Right. And, um, you have structure. and I would come, 
Yeah, exactly. And I would come home and then I would like be in bed until 4 p.m. And like, I was really depressed. And I also just like, I also suffer from like bad depression as it already is and PTSD and all that, you know, these things that, you know, staying busy, like once was like drugs and alcohol. And then, you know, second is like staying busy. Have have they kind of like filled that hole that made me feel okay. So I would come home and I'd be depressed and it was just bad. It wasn't, it wasn't working. How'd you, how'd you handle that? Uh, I mean, the, the depression. Yeah. Did you, did you see someone? Were you able to talk to someone? Were you, did you have the tools at that point to, to even contemplate doing that kind of self care that, what did what, what happened? Yeah. I mean, um, I think in like 2012 or 2013, I started seeing a therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was on the road, I would do like zoom sessions with her and stuff. Right. And, um, good for you, man. Yeah, that was helpful. Um, obviously like, you know, the biggest thing for me is like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and like, and that's where I got sober. And that's kind of what gave me the life that I have today. Mm. And, um, when I was on the road, I wasn't making it to many meetings and I wasn't in touch with people. And I wasn't like, you know, I wasn't being of service in ways that I wanted to be of service. And, and I felt like I was pretty like just wrapped up in self. Like it was either like self or like people in my immediate circle that I was having to take care of. And, um, so I, you know, like being able to get a therapist helped to, to an extent. Um, but it was really for me, like having, trying to find a routine when I was home. So like getting home from tour and not just laying in bed until 4 PM, like getting up, going to the gym, like going for a run, going to the beach. Like these are days that I have off. Like I can do whatever I want on these days. I don't have to like be depressed, you know? And it's like, I had, I had a dog the entire time that I was touring, uh, I would come home and I like wouldn't even be that grateful to spend time with her. And she was like my everything, like Aww. my dog was everything to me. And like, I had her, I got her when I had like, I think like four or five months sober. And like, I had her up until two years ago, um, when she passed away. And like, oh, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, it's okay. You know, right it's part, oh, I, Oh, I have two, I have two dogs in this closet right now. They're in, they're in their crate. If uh, I let them out, they'll start barking, but yeah, let's, um, not, do, let's not do that. Yeah, be bad for the podcast. Um, but yeah, so like it was just about finding that balance. And then eventually, like I just realized that it wasn't something that I could continue doing. Mm. Um, it just wasn't like I couldn't do it as much. And if I wasn't doing it as much, I wasn't going to be able to make a living. And so, you know, I've been touring with the drums for uh, on and off for at that point, like three years or four years. Mm-hmm. And they had become like close friends and, you know, and we were, we were on a tour. It was like 2014. We had been on tour for like five months or like in an album cycle. And they were like, Hey, just wanted to let you know that we're like firing our manager. And I was like, well, what are you going to do? You know? Yeah. Yeah. They're like, we don't, we don't know. Um, and I was just like, Hey, like this may be like a crazy idea, but like you guys have gone through a lot of managers over the years. And like, I've always kind of filled in like, you think I could give it a shot? 
and they were just like, I don't know, man, like this isn't really going very well with him. And like, we can't go into another situation where like that happens again. Like mm -hmm. we really need somebody who's going to take charge and like, you have no experience. And they're like, let us think about it. And yeah. so we, they thought about it for a couple of weeks and then they were like, Hey, we're, um, we're going to give you a shot. We'll give you six months to like, to try to figure this out. Right. And, um, uh, if it works, it works. If it doesn't like we love you and you can obviously continue touring with us. And I was like, okay. So part, part of that stipu like a stipulation to like doing that was that I had to find a job in a management company and work with somebody that was more like my senior. And I did that. I call, I, once again, I went back to being annoying, like, you know, a hungry man. Uh, hu wait, no, wait, wait, hold on uh, one second. Yeah. So, so they, they said that you, in order to do that, you had to basically go out and find them a tour manager to do that, that you could work under during that time. No, no. So I had to go find, uh, I had to go find a management company. So yeah. like they didn't want, they were like, you should go to a management firm and find a, another manager to work with you on the project. So like you would be like a co-manager because we really want somebody who's like, has some experience, gotcha, but gotcha, we also okay. want you. Uh -huh. So I got home and I was like, how the hell am I going to, so I just started calling everyone. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, like the quiet mouth doesn't get fed. And like, I just started calling, emailing all these managers. Hey, I manage the drums. Like I want to bring on a co-manager. Like, and eventually I found a company to go to, and um, started working with a co-manager and and that lasted about like seven months. And then the band was like, hey, we really don't want to work with that person anymore. Like you've really like shown what you're capable of. Like we think you could just do this on your own. Awesome. And so you started the, is, so so yeah, so you started to tour manage for the drums. Well, no, so I was I was already the tour manager. And then after tour managing them for so long, then I became the manager. Oh, so okay. like they fired the manager and I worked with this co-manager and like whatever. And, and I was home in LA and they were touring. Gotcha. gotcha so like, yeah, it, yeah, it was like this thing where, you know, it was like, here's your opportunity to get off the road. It's up to you to figure out if you're capable of like keeping this job. And, and then I've just been doing it since. And it's been six years now. Wow. So what was that transition like for you? That, that full transition? Well, obviously it was scary. Yeah. Yeah. It was scary. Um, because I'm now like not being paid a paycheck. Like I'm being paid a commission and I have one client and like, so I was like doing that, but then also kind of like taking odd little like weekend tours and stuff, like just to like pay my bills. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it was scary though. Like, and it was also scary. Like, having a client and then going to a management company and like working in an office with a bunch of people that were already doing that for a living. And it's kind of like this fear of like being exposed. Like mm. I don't ever want somebody to know that I don't, I don't, I don't ever want somebody to think that I don't know what I'm doing because that's, you know, it's like all ego and fear and like embarrassment. Like I want to be the best at what I do always. And like, if, and especially when you're starting something new, like you can't, there is no way to be the best. Like right. these things take years of experience. Like, yeah. And you've I've had a lot of, this, yeah. you've had a lot of experience in being in that position though. Was this kind of, of being the one that you've taken on so many th roles that were, that were first new to you, obviously, because they're going to be new to anybody. And you've, you, you tackled those 
successfully. Right. Was this different in some, somehow? Cause now you're saying you didn't want to be the new guy, but that kind of like you were always sort of jumping into stuff and putting yourself in a position where you were the new guy. Is that, is right. this, was this different? Um, no, I mean, ultimately no, but I feel like for once I had like, I had the type of responsibility that was like far greater than any other time that I had had mm. on in a job. Like this was somebody's actual career that I was responsible for. Right. So that's like, the difference. That's, that's the difference. Yeah. Like I don't want to be responsible for somebody's career being screwed up. Like here's my opportunity to prove myself. And what if I fail, you know, not only do I fail, at something that I want, but then I also fail for someone else who's like trying to continue their career. Right. And, uh, but I'm always up for a challenge. So it's like, there you go. You know, I just, I figured it out, you know, right on, right on. And you're still managing them, uh, today. I am. Yeah. That's fantastic, man. And they've, they've enjoyed some incredible success. We were talking about, uh, the drums earlier and I was giving them a listen and like saying how I thought they sounded like the Smiths and you were like, yeah, yeah, that Morrissey has showed up at some of their shows, and well, yeah. really, it was really interesting, as you said. They've they've gained this popularity in Latin America, which is uh, well. I talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so I think like <clears throat> you know they they put out their first record, obviously before you know it, they put out their first record, and that's kind of when I started working with them on the touring side was mm -hmm. towards the tail end of that album cycle. And it was a big album for them, mm -hmm. especially like in the UK and kind of throughout Europe and in Australia, like uh -huh. it was an album, they were signed to a major label. Um, it was an album that, you know, went silver in the UK and it charted in a ton of other countries and, they were like all the press was talking about them. They were on the cover of enemy magazine three times. Like there was a lot of this like hype around them as a band. And, and there was a lot to live up to, to that for them, like on their, on their follow-up album and which is called Portamento. And they put it out in 2011 and it was their second release um, on Island records. And, you know, and, and it was a record that, I don't feel was as well received right out the, uh, like right out the gate. And, um, it was a record that eventually got them dropped from Island and, mm. you know, and, but today that record is this like Trojan horse. Like it's this thing that has come back and is doing like really amazing streaming numbers and is, is the crowd favorite album, you know? And, um, and I think, once that record, because like in Latin America, they, especially with like indie music, I, f I feel like it's getting better, but at least like in the last 10 years, like they kind of get music late. Mm. So they're not really like on to stuff as early, at least a while back. They weren't as on to stuff early as they are now. Like now you mm. have YouTube and you have yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you have so many more platforms for people to consume music. But like back then, it just wasn't as much of a thing. And so I feel like once Latin America kind of got a hold of that record and really was able to digest it, like it was a thing, like yeah. it became a real thing. And, you know, they, they don't do like, you know, they're not an arena band, but like being a band that's like six, seven albums in and um, being around for, you know, almost 12 years at this point, and then they'll go to Mexico and like, we'll sell, you know, 
2,500, 3,000 tickets in like two days. And we'll, wow. you know, they'll play in like Lima and sell that out in Argentina and sell that out in Brazil and sell that out. And there's like this really like, it's, it's our highest, like the Latin American countries, are like highest streaming numbers across all DSPs. And mm. like, you know, Mexico is number one and it is like the number one fan engagement on all social media. And there's a, there's a love for them there. That's like really incredible to see. Um, which is awesome. And it's like now between Portamento and now they've put out another three albums. And, you know, for me, like Johnny, who's the singer and the main songwriter, and he's the sole member of the band now, like there's a hired band behind him. Like he's one of my favorite songwriters. Um, and like, he's such an amazing live performer. And at this point now he's like a career artist and his career has like morphed and changed and, when I started managing them, like it was, his career was in a weird place. Like it was, you know, like they had every other member had left the band. It was just him. He didn't know if he wanted to continue on and make another record. Like there was all this uncertainty and, you know, we, we pushed through and now his career has morphed and like, and it's been such a pleasure to be a part of that and see it and realize that like, one of the most important things about being an artist and to like have a long standing career is ultimately, I think to like, not give up. Like you're going to put mm -hmm. out songs that are, that maybe don't connect with people. You're going to put out albums that don't connect with people. Um, but you're, you, if you stay consistent and you stay delivering music that you believe that you are making um, from your heart and that you're being true to like, fans will know that they'll see it they'll stick it out with you and you might lose some but then you also have the opportunity to make another record and then you put that record out and then that you gain new fans from that you may lose some from that i think it's just this cycle that you have to say stay persistent on and like not give up you know so that's been continuing awesome to watching. continuing to say to stay true to yourself in a sense i guess yeah exactly yeah, interesting. like that's what being an artist is yeah what what about um your and 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 you've managed also several others you know you've 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 developed a roster of bands and you're you're creating this new management company uh called no sundays what was it about your background in sound and stage production and uh being on tour for so many years what did you bring from that to uh to band management that you thought was was key in being able to do that well yeah i mean i think that um it's a really really important topic because we live in a time now for musicians where like a lot of their money is made on the road mm. you know like you may be an artist that like doesn't have crazy streaming numbers, but you also sell a lot of tickets and you may not s sell as much physical. Like, I mean, I feel like physical is coming back, but like you may not sell as much, you may not sell that much physical. And also like you go sign with a record label and you take out an advance and you spend that advance and you're trying to recoup it. Like you're not getting checks. Like, you right. know, you're kind of like artists make money off, off licensing and they make money off touring unless you're kind of like, up there and you do crazy streaming numbers and you know so like i work like bringing my background of touring and understanding like tour budgets and production and routing and 
I mean, there's a lot of agents that book tours that have never been on a bus. There's a mm -hmm. lot of managers that manage artists that have never been on tour for months on end. They don't know how it works. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like, I can't, like, because I've been there and I've done crazy routings where I've had to be, be up for 18 hours and I've done all these crazy flights, like, I know that if an agent sends me something, I can look at that tour and I can say, absolutely not. Like, this is not going to work. We need to figure out another option for this because like, you're going to kill my band. Like yeah. this just isn't going to work. And yeah. that stuff really does make a difference. Like, I think that to tell an artist like, Oh, like, man, like you just got to work super hard. This is part of it. Like you got to, it's like, no, because you, you put somebody out on the road like that and you're, they're not sleeping. They're not eating right. They're traveling every day. Like you have to get, like, we are all just human beings. Like, Right. We can't do stuff like that. Like that's how my mental health deteriorated. Like, and that's how I see a lot of other, it happened to a lot of other people and like people like we need time to rest, yeah. you know? Um, so that's like one thing. And then also like, you know, like I was, I would be on tours and I'd be working with a manager. Uh, I'd be the tour manager. I'd be working with an artist that had a manager and they would give me a budget and I'd be like, this is so wrong. Like, this is, you're going to, this band is going to lose $40,000 on this tour. And like, do you have the $40,000 to lose or 50,000 or 60,000, like whatever it is. Right. And that's a huge thing because like, since when I, when I started managing the drums, like they were losing a lot of money on their tours because the manager were, was approving things that should have never been approved in the first place. And they didn't mm -hmm. have a label paying for it. They didn't, they were paying for it. Yeah. So since I've worked with them, we've never once lost money on a tour. Like, because I know how it works. Like, yeah. And we can set up strategies to where like my artists will, like, if it's something that we feel like we need to do, like I will never put an artist out on the road if they're not making money, or at least at the very least it's worth breaking even, you know? Um, and I know how to do that. Like, that's what I'm good at. And my artists are all happy when, they come home from tour and they aren't broke. Yeah. That's always a good thing, right? <laughs> yeah. And so now I mean, you've launched, yeah, that's kind of the name of the game and not being broke. Um, and now you've start, started this new company called No Sundays. Um, and you've said that um, kind of uh, driven by the pandemic to kind of create a better environment for artists. What are some of the right. things that, um, that made you move into that direction and how is creating a new company different from what you're currently doing? So like, ultimately I think the greater, like the main idea was that like, as a manager, like I was unhappy with like kind of my circuit, like what I was dealing with where I was before. Um, and you know, it's hard because I don't, I, I think everyone operates in like different capacities and like everyone kind of has a different threshold of what they're okay with or what they like or what they don't. It's mm -hmm. all like, it's all, um, subjective. Uh, but for me and like the two people that I'm starting this company with, like we were all like, you know, at the same company, we all kind of felt the same way, which was like, we felt like we wanted to be in charge of what we were doing as opposed to like having, you know, someone else like overseeing that or like 
why would we be at this company and like give up money from our pockets like on our commissions when we don't feel as though like we're getting the help that we want or it's like we feel like we can do this on our own because ultimately what that does right is like if i'm like if i'm giving up a portion of my money yeah it doesn't allow me to take risks with my artists because then i'm like you know it's like if i have an artist that wants to go do something and go on tour they want to take an opportunity but like it's not going to make a specific amount of money. Like I want to be able to take a risk and say like, Hey, look, like I'm going to waive my commissions on this because I think it's important for your career to do this. And like, if I'm like already giving up portions of my money to do that, and then also like giving up then money to like help my artist, I don't, that doesn't make any sense to me. Like if I'm going to do that, I might as well be starting my own business and like being my own boss and making my own decisions and like, and building something because again, like I like a challenge and, you know, and, and not that I'm like not capable of working for somebody else because I feel as though like I can work really well with people. Yeah. I just, you know, I have, it's kind of like you, what I've always done since I worked in the music industry is like, I've done one thing and then like, I realized, Oh, like this is, there's another thing that I can do. And like, I want to try that. I want to try to do that. So that's, I just, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. So you brought, you bring all these elements in house together so that, you know, you can just sort of provide all the different answers and all the different, uh, angles of what, you know, is, is needed to properly manage a band. And in doing that, you kind of can offer better services then. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Huh. If I'm the one who's making the decision on where the money is spent right. versus like relying on somebody else to make that decision, like there's just different ways that I feel like money should be spent to like better service an artist. Right. Like that's it. Like that's plain and simple. And that's like what we want to accomplish with this new company. And it's like, you know, and I'm sure that there's, you know, through the pandemic, like there's a lot of people that left companies, like whether it was people like, you know, Marshall Betts, who was on your podcast, who like started his own agency with a lot of friends. And like, there's other, there's other people who are, starting new management companies, new agencies, new PR firms. Like it really like split the music industry up and gave like these, like the, the opportunity for smaller companies to like get their start and thrive. And I was like coming out of this, I was just like, this is, there's no better opportunity than now to like give this a go, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and at the end of the day, what's the worst thing that happens? Like we, (laughs) we just operate like, on our own, like we have, and we're all used to doing that. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to like give that a shot and see if I can do something different, uh, not reinvent the wheel, but just, you know, yeah, do it on your own and kind of take the reins on, on on your own and, and, and build something that you, that you created. This is fucking great, man. I wish you the, I I wish you so much luck with that. I know you'll do a great job too. I know you'll do great. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. And what's awesome too, is that you, um, you're also focused on service work. And we were talking about that before we got started here, that you were up really early this morning, like feeding, uh, feeding people like burritos. And so tell me, tell me a little bit about the, the service work that you're doing. And, um, uh, you know, obviously you feel a need to give back. I mean, cause there, you know, you had, you had a hard, you had a hard time, years ago. And, um, right. I, I, I feel that, that you want to, uh, 
that you want to give back to the community? Sort of, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, um, service work is like, obviously for me, it's a big part of my life. Um, Mm -hmm. just in the sense that like, you know, I, I kind of, I try to live by this motto, which is like, we can only keep what we have by giving it away. And, Mm. um, you know, and there's like, there's somebody who was a father figure for me, uh, not having a father growing up and he's been sober a super long time and he's been there for me. Um, he was like my best friend growing up's father and he's been sober like 52 years now. And like, we have a very similar background, except like he didn't get sober before he was an adult and he went to prison and all this stuff. And he's a really amazing human being. Uh, and you know, he taught me just by example, like he didn't sit down and say, you need to do this. He just did it. Right. And I saw him doing that and I saw what joy it brought him. And I was like, I want that. Right. Like, yeah, that's kind of how I try to live my life is not tell people what to do, but just try to like lead Lead by by example, lead lead by example. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, it kind of started for me, which was like going to Alcoholics Anonymous and they do a lot of service work. Um, and I got into like speaking in juvenile halls, um, on panels So, you know, I would either bring in a panel or I would get brought in on a panel. And when I, you know, kind of from when I was like 18, 19, up until like, obviously like the pandemic, maybe a little bit before that, but like, you know, when I would be touring, I'd come home. If I had time to go, I would go, but you know, and I'd go in and I'd speak to these kids who were like in the same position that I was in, Mm. you know, and like, I'm obviously like, much more fortunate than some of them just because like the honest truth is, is that a lot of the kids that are in juvenile halls are people of color and like I'm a white kid. So I, I definitely had it a lot easier um, and had some more leniency, but you know, so I'm going in here, I'm just saying like, look um, there's something better than what you're doing. And I know that it doesn't seem like it, um, but there is, and it exists. And I try to just, you know, share my story and hope that they can relate to it. Yeah. Um, so it kind of started with that, um, doing that as much as possible. Um, and, uh, and then it kind of like morphed. Like, I, I feel like there's, I've never woken up one morning and then thought to myself, wow, there's nobody that I can help today. You know, like it, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not a thing that up. exists. There's, there's, yeah, there's always somebody somewhere that, that needs like, um, that needs a hand, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. and, and have you seen so, the result? Have you seen the results of getting involved in that? Not really, you know, like right. there's, there's never been a situation where I've like seen somebody get out, um, and like remain to be in contact with them. But you never know. I think, right? So you just kind of like keep plugging away at it and doing yeah. what you, doing what you feel you can, uh, to be helpful in, 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 in ways that, you know, can be meaningful to you. Right. So. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, you can't really, it's great, man. Yeah. The percentage of people that actually get it is very slim. It's, it's a very, very low number. So you kind of just expect that that's what's going to happen and hope that that doesn't happen. You know, like you hope that by what you say to somebody, um, 
is going to like resonate in their head and it may not even be like instantaneous, right? Like it may be this thing where like I'm sitting in front of someone and I tell them this and they're a 16 year old kid like in juvenile hall and then they, and then they get out and they get arrested again and then they go to prison and they're in prison for five years. And then like one day they're just like, damn, I remember this kid came and talked to me when I was in juvenile hall. And like, he told me, you know, and it's like, sometimes it takes a long time before like what you say connects, but it's like right. in their subconscious, you know? And you, and you know, and you know that, right. You know that to be true. That's great. Man. Yeah. I'm, That's great. Same for me. You know, it's like, yeah. and I only know that from my own experience. Right. You never know. You never know when, I mean, you, all you can do is just be, um, be helpful and, and do what you feel is the right thing. Right. In that, in that sense. And, um, you know, you're giving back. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm answering my own question. Like, you know, you can't ever really know exactly if you're healthy. It's kind of a, like a silly question, I guess, but, um, no, you just do, you do, you do what you, what you can and you do, uh, and you feel compelled to, to help people. And I know you're, and for sure you're getting through to some people. I'm just going to say that. No, absolutely. And it's in so many, I think that like kind of the message that I try to like say, like, you know, whether I'm like just like speaking to somebody like one-on-one or like whatever it is, is it's, you know, especially like going to meetings and doing all that is it's like, Hey, um, like you don't have to go into a juvenile hall and speak to a bunch of troubled kids to like share a message. Right. Like, yeah. You know, I think that it's like, I can't get on here and start like naming people's names of like people who I know are sober, but I can say that I am right. Like I can share my experience and, then hope that somebody sees that like the amount of people that I know um, kind of all walks of life that like over the years, it's like as simple for me as like on Instagram, like when it's my sober birthday, like I always post like, you know, this like sobriety counter and put that it's my birthday and just say like something as simple as like my life is amazing as a direct result of like helping someone else. And like, yeah, this you know, I could have missed all of this. And I've had people reach out to me and be like, Hey man, I'm really struggling, struggling, like staying sober. And like, I need help. And I saw that you're sober. And like, is there any way that we could talk? And it's as simple as that. Like, yeah, that's, that's how I stay doing this. That's, that's what I mean when I say the only, the only way to keep what you have is by giving it away. Well, then that's the thing then, man, is that people aren't people, you know, you, that you can help, you help one person, man, and it's 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 that's what it, that's what it's all about. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome, Andrew. You do such great stuff, and um, uh, you know, you had this, uh, you had a unique upbringing, got out of it, and give back to people not only uh, in talking to those in Jubilee Hall, but also bringing music to fucking people, which is the most awesome right. fucking <laughs> gift, dude. <laughs> exactly. exactly. I mean, you're not you're not doing it for free, but no one's doing anything for free. But yeah, uh, I mean, you used to do it for free, but, but still it's, it's, it's the, the power of music and getting out there. And, and, and I mean, that's kind of, that's really big picturing this whole thing, right? Yeah. I mean, it's fantastic. at the end of the day, it's a, I only want to be doing things that I love. Right on. And, um, cause life is way too short to not yeah. do things that you love. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And that's a good place to, uh, to, to conclude, man. Let's do, do what we love keep up the great work, man. And, uh, I look forward to seeing great things from, um, from your company, no Sundays. So awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was, 
it was a, a pleasure speaking with you and thank you for having me. Well, thanks for sharing your story, Andrew. It was really, it was, I was, it was, I, I felt honored to have you here, man. Thanks again. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, man. I'll talk Take to you care. soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Great. Bye. Okay. That was Andrew Mishko. Loved that interview. I thought, uh, I thought Andrew is, um, such a compelling figure and, uh, not only that, he's from like one of my favorite places in the country to hang out in is uh, going back to my hometown and hanging out in Venice. And that's where Andrew grew up, although he had to bail from there because I totally get that he is uh, just needed a quiet place because Venice is can be very frenetic. And uh, and I get that. So he lives kind of a little more inland now in Los Feliz. Um, totally get that. But Andrew's like a super chill dude, but very hardworking. And, uh, you know, um, early on, you know, he took his knocks, but he, um, but he kept on learning and he kept at it. And it's so incredibly admirable, um, what he did and how he really brought himself up on his own and sought out the right environment for him and knew he wanted to learn and continue to get into uh, different uh, sectors in live music and learn different crafts and continue to push forward and expand his knowledge base. And now he's running a management company. So um, I think it's a phenomenal story and I love this dude. Um, and uh, giving back. I mean, uh, talking to um, to young young kids in juvenile hall and giving them the example of someone who was in their shoes and now is a is a successful uh, manager of musical acts uh, such as himself is uh, is just super inspiring. And it's great that he wants to get back there and try to do that. Um, you know, this great quote uh, Andrew said: "I've never woken up." Uh, in the morning and thought to himself that there's nobody that I can help today. You know, he said, there's always somebody uh, somewhere that needs a hand. That's just heartwarming and amazing. And uh, it's that kind of uh, level of gratitude uh, for one's own place, but also um, his desire to get out there and help other people uh, in need is amazing and admirable. And it's, uh, uh, he's just a great dude. So um, thanks again for joining me for this episode of road case. Um, want to thank all of you for your support as always. I really do truly appreciate it. And we've got some amazing guests coming up in the next couple of weeks and months. I can't wait to share them with you. So stay tuned to, uh, to the socials for that at road case pod. And I want to especially thank Andrew Mishko for taking the time to be here on this episode of road case. Thanks again so much for listening. And I'd like to encourage everyone to get involved with Roadcase. You can do so in a number of different ways. You can email me at info at roadcasepod.com with questions, comments, and even suggestions for guests. Or you can follow us on the socials, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We're at RoadcasePod. And we have a YouTube channel called Roadcase Podcast. And of course, you can subscribe to this podcast on your favorite listening platform. And if you could please rate and review the podcast while you're there, that would be great. So I want to thank Waltzer for this awesome theme music that we have. And I want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to Roadcase. We have a lot of great episodes coming up, so I'll see you on down the road. Yeah.